I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. We were off last week for NatCon Brussels, which was a lovely conference, but we're happy to be back with you. We have perhaps an unusually wider ranging segment than even normal than we are going everywhere from the Supreme Court to Hunter Biden's laptop to Will Smith and Chris Rock and the Oscar. So we'll kick it off with Ben on the aforementioned uh, infamous Hunter Biden laptop. I will talk about Ketanji Brown-Jackson with her Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. We'll go over to Rachel for an update pertaining to uh, Rachel's favorite topic of all, of course, which is not Mitch McConnell, but actually uh, Google. And then we'll conclude with Emily and Chris Rock, Will Smith, and whatever the hell happened on Sunday night. So uh, let's go over to you, Ben, to kick us off. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, I think it's it's imperative to touch on kind of the Hunter Biden laptop being now blessed as politically correct to acknowledge that it, the contents of it are real, as the New York Times finally did some 17 months and then 24 paragraphs into a piece which does not highlight at all that headline item that finally prosecutors have authenticated, according to the New York Times, the contents of that laptop. This story is and has always been about one thing in particular, and that is what do how and to what extent do the Biden family's dealings with all manner of corrupt and often adversarial regimes, to what extent do they impact U.S. national security and foreign policy? To what extent do they compromise or at very minimum create the appearance of conflict of interest and compromise of now the president of the United States? And this should have been repeatedly the question posed to then candidate Joe Biden. It wasn't. That's a scandal in and of itself. And part of it is because of what I termed in a piece for Josh at Newsweek, the ultimate American information operation masquerading as a defense against a Russian information operation that the Hunter Biden laptop was not real. And then the effort to suppress any of the reportage around it, of course, in league with the senior most members of the intelligence community, including several former CIA directors. Of course, the corporate media attacking the New York Post, not standing up for it then when it was suppressed and when all manner of people who tried to share the story found themselves censored on social media. So there was big tech, corporate media, intelligence community collusion to suppress a story. And according to some polls, or at least one poll, this alone might have swung the election itself. So the ultimate in election interference and thwarting democracy by not letting the people assess the contents of this laptop and determine what the implications were for national security and a potential commander in chief. That's one part of the Hunter Biden laptop story, but there have been several other developments in recent days. So the times in its story were disclosed that the laptop is now authenticated talked about the fact that this this prosecution, the so-called tax probe into Hunter Biden, is actually more wide-ranging than just about taxes. It potentially involves FARA, Foreign Agent Registration Act, violations in terms of lobbying on behalf of a slew of foreign powers, and then on top of that, potentially money laundering. And the Wall Street Journal has corroborated this. They've said that prosecutors are looking at, for example, uh, Hunter Biden's depraved activity in part to figure out if that's going to be a defense that he uses But also, of course, there's obviously the potential for blackmail there from a national security perspective. And then also looking at what he was doing with Burisma. Why did the funds flow to him? Obviously, you know, there's a nexus there to U.S. foreign policy. There's reports that Hunter Biden basically got a loan or was given hundred some odd thousand dollars to buy a Fisker sports car from some Kazakhstan oligarch. And there are just a million different little anecdotes just like that that are now being cleansed. Uh, Chuck Grassley, who put out a report with Senator Ron Johnson well before the 2020 election, actually are, they're actually providing receipts right now, literal receipts of Hunter Biden, apparently getting a direct payment from a, a key Chinese Communist Party linked oil company, CEFC. So with all that said, I think there are a few questions here that we ought to grapple with. One is the, the why. What are they trying to get out in front of by cleansing all of this information right now? Is it really to get out in front of the bad news of Hunter Biden prosecution or is there something 
more uh, intriguing here at play is this sort of the insurance policy against Joe Biden so that if need be, this can be used against him to force him out down the road. That's obviously the more big conspiratorial sort of view of this. Then another is what should Republicans be doing with respect to this? It's not enough to just call for more investigations and the like. What would a serious Republican Party actually do, given the potential compromise and the threats to national security here, especially because all of these powers right now, we're dealing with matters of war with respect to Russians and Ukrainians, where the Biden family clearly had dealings. And then, of course, with a senior partner in the Russia relationship, China as well. So with that, I'm happy for anyone to hit at kind of the media criticism angle, the national security aspect, and then the political aspect of what should Republicans be doing here and going forward. Well, I think it's interesting, um, you know, you've seen already House Republicans at least foreshadow taking over the majority in 2023, start issuing records preservation requests with regard to the Hunter Biden laptop. So not just sort of the issue of the laptop itself, but everybody who covered it. So records preservation requests being issued not only to the cable, co- you know, the, the media companies that messed up this story, but the tech companies and the intelligence officials that all came out, you know, en masse to say, oh, this is, you know, Russian misinformation. And, you know, I do think it is like a, a, a damning indictment of, you know, sort of our, our corporate, our media, our corporate media culture writ large. But I think that the really scary thing that's coming out of this is some of the stuff that you just raised about what was on his laptop with regard to Ukraine. I mean, you know, it, it was always like, haha, corruption right? At, at some sort of highest level. But now we're dealing with a situation where like there's active aggression, uh, you know, from Russia with regard to Ukraine, and they might have information <laughs> on what, what you know, the president's son was doing, and he might be somehow tied, um, you know, like talk about intel problems, right? It's, this is, you know, <laughs> you have Eric Swalwell sleeping with Fang Fang, and you have Hunter Biden's laptop in the hands of the Russians, you know, with all sorts of misdeeds on it. Like this, this isn't going to end well. And the fact that we didn't even take this seriously, we need to start taking it seriously now, but you haven't seen anyone talking about it, I don't think, as far as like the mainstream coverage. And to, and to your point, including Ukrainian bio lab work, and the New York Post reported on this, Russians, of course, use this for a propaganda coup to claim that actually Joe Biden himself is involved and Biden's family himself is involved with Ukrainian biolabs. And then as the New York Post reported, a trove of emails on Hunter's laptop uh, confirmed that he played a role in helping a California defense contractor analyze killer diseases and bioweapons in Ukraine, including linking this company up with Burisma. So it's a mess. Anyway, I don't want to step on anyone else's toes here. So look, I'm happy Rachel brought up the, or she connected the dots, I should say, between the Burisma and what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. What does Ukraine have over Joe Biden, Hunter Biden's head? I mean, I think that's a really important point to make. I think Lee Smith, who's one of the most incisive pundits in this entire broader space, had a column for Tablet Magazine kind of towards the beginning of the current uh, Russia-Ukraine contra attempts, ma- making that similar point. I guess the only thing that I want to emphasize here so, I mean, Rachel and I do a lot of these big tech talks, right? So whenever I go and I do a big tech debate, a talk, podcast, whatever, I almost always start somewhere near the beginning of my remarks by talking about how the New York Post was locked out of its own Twitter account, its Facebook account on the precipice of the 2020 election for this very story. It remains to this day, I mean, the way that I phrased at the time was I called the big tech's Pearl Harbor attack. I mean, that was like their full frontal assault. They saw, obviously, the 2020 was a regime-defining election. There were multiple kind of uh, ideas of what it meant for an American regime, for an American kind of way of life to be up there that they were directly competing on the ballot. And they pulled out all the stops. They censored the nation's fourth largest newspaper literally out of its own social media account. They prevented the links from being disseminated there. You could think for hours and hours and hours and days, you could do all sorts of kind of mental gymnastics in a day trying to think of this possibly happening on the other side of the shoe, being on the other foot of of the Republican candidates, um, you know, son having similar treatment. It would never happen, okay? It would never, ever, ever happen. And it just shows that the game is fundamentally rigged. And this is kind of the purpose of your column for me, I thought, Ben, was that this whole thing is an information operation. It is kind of getting at kind of the fundamental tension between the deplorables, obviously, and the ruling class that is a late motif of running theme on the show here. It's an episode that we should not forget about. And if Republicans retake the House and the Senate this fall, which I expect they will, then they absolutely should be using the subpoena power to really kind of get more fully to the bottom of this at a bare minimum, because it is now directly relevant because of the Burisma Ukraine stuff. And we really need to get to the full bottom of this, I think. 
Well, and first of all, I would say a serious Republican Party shouldn't be complicit with special interests who um, are also uh, in Ukraine doing similar business to Hunter Biden. And we we know, in fact, because of Paul Manafort, um, who collaborated with Tony Podesta um, on that uh, contract they had with the European Center for a Modern Ukraine, which was basically a front for a giant photo violation um, in lobbying on behalf of Yanukovych uh, at the time, that that was the case. Um, you know, special interest, the swamp is very much a bipartisan swamp, and that's always worth remembering. Uh, but the sad fact, just to bring this around, is that I actually think, you know, generally based on what Daryl Issa has said, if Republicans take back the House, how they would pursue this uh, line of investigation, that the Republican Party is broadly serious about this, of course, because Joe Biden is a Democratic president, this involves his son, and there's political um, advantage to pursuing the investigation. But uh, ultimately, I don't know that it actually matters that much um, what Republicans in Congress and what the Republican Party actually does, because so long as we have a, a complicit media, um, this will not matter at all for Hunter Biden or other Hunter Bidens out there, whether they are the sons of Republicans or Democratic politicians, um, although it probably would matter if you're the son of a Republican, um, but mostly for uh, Democrats, because the, the media is entirely com complicit in um, acting like this is no big deal. Social media is along with them um, for this ride. We saw this right before the election, but it will continue to happen. It will continue to happen. They just are significantly less interested in this story um, than they are in, in so many other things. Um, and so without that, uh, without a serious fourth estate, this is just going to continue to happen. And it's a very bleak state of affairs. Ben, any final thoughts on the laptop before we move on? I'll leave them to our parting chats. Okay, sounds good. All right, so let's move on to uh, the Katanji Brown-Jackson Supreme Court confirmation fight. Um, query whether it actually is much of a fight, I suppose. Um, Joe Manchin, the you know somewhat moderate, somewhat centrist Democratic senator from West Virginia, has said that he will vote for Katanji Brown-Jackson. Um, I, I, I honestly, I, I haven't come across an article, maybe you guys will correct me, saying wh whether Kirsten Sinema will vote for her. I assume that she will. Um, if, if Manchin will, I find it almost impossible to believe that Sinema won't. So it's extremely difficult, perhaps impossible, to see that this nomination fight is going to get derailed. Um, you know, Rachel had a very interesting piece for the Federalist a little while ago talking about uh, Rule 26, if I have the citation correctly there. I'm not the parliamentary procedure nerd that Rachel is, but the, there was like there was like a very kind of um, a extreme scenario by which Republicans maybe could filibuster this thing through the fall election. It does not appear it's going to happen. So I think it's worth talking a little bit about what we've seen from Katandi Brown-Jackson in the confirmation hearing, what kind of justice we expect her to be um, if and perhaps when she replaces Stephen Breyer. So look, the reality was, if you kind of go back, first of all, I mean, we we, we did. I I feel like you know, numerous podcast segments kind of talking about just the vile, and I, I don't use that term lightly, the vile and egregious process by which Katanji Brown Jackson was nominated, um, the overt in, in invocation of of race and sex to choose a nominee, kind of a new low, I think, for kind of the intersectional left, for a new low for kind of putting identity politics front and center of your political agenda. But even kind of after Biden kind of affirmed and kind of he reaffirmed that campaign promise that he would do that, Ketanji Brown Jackson, even kind of relative to the other kind of folks who were in the final sweepstakes, folks like Leandra Kruger out in, out in California, excuse me, Ketanji Brown Jackson was kind of the front runner for all the various kind of far left progressive groups. She was the front runner. She was the choice. She was the pick of choice for NARAL, Planned Parenthood, human rights campaign, Soros affiliate, open borders groups, you name it. And that's not an accident, okay, because they have done the reading, they have done the homework in a way that judicial conservatives, legal conservatives, and kind of the legal conservative movement in general have consistently over and over again failed to do going all the way back to John Sununu famously telling George H.W. Bush, just trust me on David Souter, because the left does the reading when it comes to their judicial nominees. They know exactly what they're going to get, and they are going to get, in my estimation, a Sonia Sotomayor-style progressive leftist who is ideologically in tune with the far left of the base, who will sign on with Sotomayor uh, on all of her kind of, I think, radical kind of um, race, sex, um, uh, immigration, kind of intersectional centric issues. Um, I think back to a case from 2014, there was a case called Shuet. It was an affirmative action case out of Michigan. Really, really, really radical kind of a, a descent from Sotomayor here. The people in Michigan, basically in the Shua case, they had a, a, um, a, a ballot initiative to ban affirmative action in the state. 
Uh, Michigan, of course, is a state with a unique history as far as as far as affirmative action litigation is concerned. It was where the Grutter versus Bollinger case happened at University of Michigan back in 2003, I think the year was. So anyway, the people of Michigan tried to ban affirmative action. The, the Supreme Court said they could. Sotomayor has like a 55 to 60 page dissent saying that people cannot ban affirmative action, meaning that affirmative action is required by the Constitution. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before she passed away, signed on to that. Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan did not. The point is, it is, it is dissents and decisions exactly like that, that I would expect Ketanji Brown Jackson to sign on to in a way that Stephen Breyer, um, who was a liberal, albeit a somewhat pragmatic, somewhat centrist liberal, would not. So I fully expect Ketanji Brown Jackson to kind of side against law enforcement consistently in all sorts of Fourth Amendment cases. You know, at the hearing last week, I think for me, kind of the most eye-opening thing the thing that got the most headlines, um, of course, was this infamous exchange with Marsha Blackburn, where where they asked her to define what a woman is. And she said, I'm not a biologist, which I, I mean, you know, I'll leave that to Rachel and Emily just to kind of go off on like just how utterly absurd that is. But the thing for me that really stood out, honestly, even more than that, was Senator Cornyn of Texas basically asked her about kind of the fallout of, of, of Obergefell, the same-sex marriage decision, and how she kind of sees the aftermath of that playing out with respect to religious liberty. And she basically just like shrugged her shoulders and said, well, you know what, Senator, that's the nature of a constitutional right, which, you know, translation for me is like the translation is religious people take a knee before the rainbow flag, bow before the rainbow jihad. That's basically what she said. So I am pretty freaking blackpilled, um, as you can tell, when it comes to this nomination. Um, I'm curious if uh, you guys uh, agree with me. Uh, maybe there's a slimmer of optimism in here. I have so many, too many thoughts, I think, <laughs> to to really just like contain them to just to just a few minutes. But, you know, so in addition to writing about Rule 26, I wrote very early on that the Senate should investigate these claims of um, reduced child porn sentencing, this sort of pattern that we've seen from from Judge Jackson. And I have to tell you, the years I've spent writing about all kinds of topics, right, ranging on the spectrum of inflammatory to normal, this piece has become the most controversial thing I've ever written on the right. It's shocking to me. Um, I've been dragged by National Review. I've been like, I, I've had, you know, the left wing harassment I anticipated, the right wing I did not. And I just, I cannot explain it, uh, why we can't talk about this with regard to Judge Jackson's record. But setting that aside, I think even today, we're recording this on a, on a Tuesday, there's been revelations that you know, more sentencing documents have been withheld by the White House than were initially presented to the to the committee, which is to the point, this is why you show up and you ask. This is why you show up and you vet all judicial nominees uh, and, and you don't contain yourself to what sort of our, our, our betters like to say uh, is, you know, within the realm of, you know, appropriate questioning. Um, I, I do think that we're in a situation now where Senate Republicans have demanded the 48, at least a portion of the 48,000 uh, documents the White House is still withholding on this nominee, and they've demanded also probation sentencing uh, recommendations in specific uh, child porn cases that the White House is, refu is refu refusing to turn over. Now, this gets back to what Josh was saying about Rule 26, where if you put yourself in a position now where you're demanding these records, you don't get them, and then you show up to vote on the nominee anyway, you look hopelessly weak. And so I hope that there is uh, some discussion among Senate Republicans to say, look, we are going to use Rule 26 on this nominee. And to, be, to clarify, that's the quorum requirement. In a tied Senate, Republicans have to show up physically to report this nominee out of committee. Uh, there should be discussion, I think, of using that to their advantage right now if it means getting the documents they're requesting, because we have seen again and again, the theme of this nomination is obfuscation. Uh, in addition to, you know, all of the sort of crazy things she said uh, during the confirmation hearing. But I I've never seen a reaction like I got uh, to my essay that we should really lean into the child porn sentencing issue. It is beyond, I cannot explain it. It's crazy. The reaction from the right, you're saying, yeah, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, weird. Wow. Uh, it, it was, and, and Rachel flagged some clips of National Review, I think very, National Review writers very smugly um, acting as though conservatives who raised this issue were roots, were cynics, um, who were just sort of cynically stoking a media circus or were too dumb 
to understand that this was not a reasonable issue. But the funny thing is even in Andy McCarthy's National Review piece, which really tried to set the table here and say um, the child porn sentencing question is a non-question, you can see that it's obviously a substantive debate in legal circles, right? So like, that's the point. He, what McCarthy was saying is that Jackson's com Jackson's uh, concerns are substantive. And I think that's fine. I think it's a fine argument. But the point is, it is a debate. It is an argument. It is not unreasonable to be on one side or the other of this argument. So to act as the conservatives and for conservatives to come out and act as though it was, you know, to do the left's bidding and say that this was some sort of bat signal to QAnon was, um, it, it shows the real fetish, the real fetish that um, it, it is almost, and I mean this, sexual on the right um, for going after people on the right. Um, and I, I guess I'm, I'm uh, in saying that in jest, but part of me kind of believes that. Uh, but it, it is like very much uh, the, this fetish of going after people on the right where it becomes a reflex that's not even reasonable. Um, it's sort of detached from uh, reason and substance. And that's annoying because these are the people who are claiming to be the arbiters of substance and reason. Uh, and so I think we really saw that play out. Um, I think Marsha Blackburn asked a completely substantive question. The media stripped it from its context. She was talking about the Virginia Military Institute case, which Katanji Brown Jackson said she wasn't familiar with, which is insane in and of itself. Um, so it, you know, it, it Republicans, I think, did a, a fairly, Marsha Blackburn and Lindsey Graham did a fairly decent job of, of bringing these issues to the forefront. Um, it's a foregone conclusion that she's going to be confirmed, but it's always sad to see how these issues get turned um, on the right when there's no reason to actually in this case. I've got a piece coming on the uh, Kentaja Brown Jackson doesn't know much about biology issue. And I think the, the real story there being not that she can't define it, but she wouldn't define it and why she wouldn't define it, I actually think is the real most significant story there. Um, but I'll unpack that in a story so we can deal with that another time. Um, but setting that aside, I think the, the point about obscuring the record, I think, is, is well said. The 48,000 documents is one aspect of it. I think it was a conscious decision to pick KBJ because she does not have a long record of opinions, which would have revealed the utter radicalism, which you can see, which is implicit, of course, in her record of constantly arguing for softer sentences for the worst kind of criminals. And we have a piece at Real Clear Investigations uh, today, as we're recording this from Paul Sperry, in-depth Katanji Brown-Jackson's soft spot for drug dealers, pedophiles, and terrorists. And that is not hyperbole. And that is a good descriptor of her record. And I just want to briefly say this. There's this exchange, an amazing exchange between her and then U.S. Attorney Stephanie Rose, where Jackson, and this is in 2011 at a uh, sentencing commission hearing, is talking about, by keeping criminals in longer, it doesn't seem to make a difference with regard to whether or not they recidivate. And this U.S. attorney objects, it does protect the safety of the public, though, when they're not present to recidivate. Jackson counters, but the amount of time in jail doesn't affect that because there's no difference. If we keep them in jail for the extra 36 months or whatever, they're going to recidivate at the same rate as if we release them early. So I don't see how public protection is being affected one way or the other in that scenario. And Rose replies, because during the three years they're in prison, they're not out committing new crimes. That's the difference. That alone should have disqualified Ketanji Brown Jackson from serving on any court, period, full stop. Yeah, no, it's well said. Um, uh, th there's a lot more to unpack here, honestly. This confirmation hearing has been a total crap show. Uh, excuse me for the slightly <laughs> impolite term, but uh, we'll come back to that in final thoughts. So let's move on for now. So over to you, Rachel. Yeah, so taking us in somewhat of a different direction, although not that different for my the things I like to talk about, but <laughs> there was a, a pretty in-depth um, piece that came out in Politico recently looking at former Google CEO Eric Schmidt's role uh, in staffing uh, the office, the, the science office uh, in the White House. And I, I, it's, it's a pretty damning piece and I commend it to your attention uh, because it is long and in-depth and I'm just going to give you the, the very baseline upshot of it, which is that the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, who now runs a foundation, indirectly paid the salaries of two White House science employees, including the now chief of staff. Uh, and while he was doing this, he was uh, serving on multiple boards with the head of the Office of, of Science and sort of very uh, connected to decisions that were not, not just personal decisions that were being made uh, in the office, but sort of the general direction of where the office was going. And obviously this raises like, you know, huge red flags in terms of ethics concerns 
Um, but I think it speaks to this broader problem that I think the right hasn't necessarily sorted through because you know we we love this idea on the right that we you know we privatize government, right? We we push as much as we can out to private industry. But what happens when it's some, a company like Google? And I, I raise Google in particular because it is it is becoming increasingly so entangled with baseline government functions. And this is not just Google, right? You look at someone a company like Amazon Web Services, which which is the hosting arm of the of the Central Intelligence Agency. You know, you have Google doing uh, AI research, you know, try, or at least saying they're doing it for the government. You have Google trying to become integral to our health sector and, and infrastructure. And so this is the company um, that we are ostensibly on the right trying to break up. And yet it's, be, it's become so integral to the country's functioning that I don't even know if you could at this point. And this presents a problem again for the right because we want to privatize government, but we're doing so with these companies who hate us. Uh, and I would argue that have power that is so centralized and integral to the functioning of the government that they almost act as the government itself. Um, so I raise this because I just think it presents a, a larger question separate and aside from, I think, the obvious uh, problems that we have uh, with Google really running the Office of Science of all times to be running it to, right? Right now, where the Office of Science is considered like so important, sort of the end of the COVID pandemic and, you know, through this. But Eric Schmidt has a long history of this, of course, you know, we, we know, and I think we've discussed before how integral he's been, you know, actively campaigning for Barack Obama, running the tech for Obama's campaign. Um, the Intercept a couple of years ago did an assessment of the Obama presidency. Google employees were present weekly uh, in the White House. You saw this. I, I draw a direct link between their presence and the lack of enforcement actions that were taken against them by the FTC in 2013. So there's a whole number of threads that you could pull from this story. Um, but I think the, meta, the, the sort of meta narrative for me that's really interesting that we could uh, kick the discussion off with is, again, this idea that we, we want to privatize government to some extent on the right. But what are we doing here with these companies uh, who, who hate us and will use the levers of government against us the minute they get the chance? This, this story is completely insane, and I'm glad we're talking about it. It's not insane, actually, it's mundane. It's both mundane and insane, because this is what it looks like inside of our government. And uh, Politico got its hands on the story. Even people within the department itself were complaining um, that this presented a conflict of interest, but it didn't, it, I mean, it doesn't, it's not phasing anybody outside of what Politico and us talking about this story, that there's this appearance of a conflict of interest, even if the appearance wasn't there, even if we couldn't see it, this is just how it works now. He's, it's from his private foundation, funding the salaries of people who hold the levers of government that would be overseeing stuff that makes him tons of money. Just think about it, it is corrupt on its face. This is not how countries like ours are supposed to function. Um, and so if the system works, this political artic Politico article will scare the Biden administration out of continuing this conflict of interest. Um, and the, the sort of sunlight will act as a disinfectant. But in order for it to do that, people have to be upset. The story can't just land. You know, People have to be disgusted by the way this, this private billionaire is using our government in ways that could enrich him at the expense of other worthy competitors. It's outrageous. Uh, but again, for sunlight to function as a disinfectant, we will have to be upset about it and the sunlight will actually have to be seen. Um, so we'll see if, if that happens, but it, an incredible glimpse into um, how the neoliberal sort of democratic establishment would like our government to function um, in concert with Silicon Valley. So uh, it is a major story, and it kind of hits on what I, another theme that I like to hit on a lot when I talk about big tech, which is the collapse of the purported public-private distinction, right? I mean, the entire kind of libertarian reason magazine-style argument to not gun the weeds and regulate these companies, the entire premise that we should not kind of get our hands dirty, whether it's antitrust or common carrier regulation, Title II or anything like that, the entire premise is that these are just truly purely kind of private companies that have no kind of greater public interest whatsoever, let alone are, are, are being kind of inundated with public government, you know, uh, Uncle Sam employee kind of sentiment. Um, stories like this just prove that they, they demonstrably reveal that argument, I think, to be a lie before our face. I think obviously for a lot of us, we saw this coming uh, much earlier. I mean, another kind of major data point I think was kind of last summer, I think it was, it was roughly kind of June, July, 2021, 
when Jen Psaki was standing there from, from the White House press secretary podium, kind of openly bragging to the American people about how she was actively working with Mark Zuckerberg to tamp down quote unquote COVID misinformation as it pertains to kind of masking and vaccines. So there's been a lot of data points now. You know, I'm not a statistician by trade, but I would I would go so far as to say there's probably a statistically significant sample size at this point to kind of make the point that these are really not purely quote unquote private companies, let alone obviously kind of holding a Aside the task, the task that they do, um, which is a funded, a quintessentially kind of public function, obviously as pertains to kind of the dissemination of ideas and speech, um, a, a commercial kind of a means for for businesses to reach consumers and customers and things like that. So. I, I think it's really important for those of us in kind of the big tech skeptical crowd to shine a spotlight on things like this. I, I agree with Emily that it, it should be mon- or sh- excuse me, it should be insane, but it really kind of is mundane for those of us who have been paying close attention to this for a number of years now. That, but that's really sad and unfortunate. It's still worth shining a spotlight on. Uh, you know, the question is obviously, will will anything happen? And Unfortunately, I think for now, obviously, it's difficult to see. I mean, I, I, I think antitrust remains the best possible path for any kind of bipartisan big tech related uh, legislative momentum. But um, we'll see. I'm not particularly optimistic about anything meaningful getting done, but I hope I'm wrong. Well, I think to that point, part of the reason that the big tech companies have cultivated such close relations with Washington, D.C. is, of course, to protect themselves from ever being targeted with policies that would actually break them up and and defang them. Uh, You know, there was a great piece recently by Jacob Siegel at Tablet, I think it was titled Invasion of the Fact Checkers. And there are a lot of insights in that piece, but one of them is that he basically says that modern day so-called fact checkers, oftentimes they're really score setters, but fact checkers, which sort of serve at the nexus between a big tech, which relies on the fact checkers to challenge narratives it doesn't like, and then of course the corporate media companies as well, really in effect serves as the enforcement arm for the administrative state itself. Because generally speaking, what fact checkers do is they serve as stenographers for the administrative state and push its narrative as the most authoritative of all when we've seen that the authorities get everything wrong and then intentionally lie and obfuscate about it. I think there's an analog here, which is that the big tech companies themselves increasingly ought to be seen as adjuncts of the administrative state, if not part of the administrative state. Here, you kind of see it in reverse in that they are actually going to work for the administrative state and being subsidized uh, and subsidizing administrative state agents. But I, I really think what this speaks to is total capture of government. And obviously, big corporations have always had relations with the federal government. But the difference is the pervasiveness of the power, the extent of the power. And then when you have government using, in effect, big tech companies, to your point, Josh, to censor and stifle a debate and abrogate the First Amendment by proxy. That's one example of the danger herein. But there's broader danger, which is the fact that this this incestuous relationship ultimately will threaten national security and all of our liberties. Uh, In particular, just if any of these companies are compromised by foreign adversaries, setting aside the work that big tech companies do with foreign adversaries, that alone presents manifest challenges, even before we get to the First Amendment issues. So I agree, this is what happens in Washington, D.C., but the nature and the extent of it, the character of it is different and more nefarious. And that's why it is useful that political wrote the story. And then the question would be, why did they write it? And maybe we'll cover that another time. <laughs> But before covering in another time, let's end this podcast on a, hope, on a hopefully lighter and sunnier note. So, Emily, tell us about the Oscars. I think it's going to get darker. I don't know. Maybe. No, uh, say it ain't so. Right. <laughs> so we have to talk about, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say have to, um, but the, the biggest culture story of the year so far occurred this week, and that was when uh, Will Smith walked on stage and literally slapped uh, Chris Rock for saying that Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith's wife, looked like she could star in the next uh, G.I. Jane movie, uh, which is a reference to Jada Pinkett Smith's uh, shaved head. Uh, She has alopecia, so I guess it's somewhat of a a sensitive topic in the Smith family, but of course she's also an actress who makes her money off of being beautiful and her appearance, and you'd think that uh, a a mild Joan Rivers-style quip would be entirely within bounds for multimillionaires who make money off of their physical appearances, but I guess 
guess that's not the case. Will Smith then won Best Actor, tearfully apologized, apologized the next day to Chris Rock. And this is a, a huge culture story and it has become the dominant topic in our uh, media and just general discourse this week because it's so perfectly debatable from so many sides, right? Is this toxic masculinity or is it virtuous masculinity? Um, you, you have a very genuine question there, right? Defending your wife's honor on the world stage um, with violence, uh, something that you know is, is probably underutilized by men of a certain type, um, the, the sort of Hollywood, um, what's one of Hollywood progressive um, who just likes to tweet about things and, and not actually do much. Uh, so you could maybe think of it in that respect or you could think of it in the respect that it's petulant, um, which is sort of the take that I agree with, that it is, it is petulant to lash out at a, disproportionately at a silly joke, um, especially by hitting another person. Um, and, and let's just say by slapping another person uh, with, a, with an open hand. I mean, come on, you have to at least close the fist if you want to defend your wife's honor. Uh, so this is why it's, it's sucked up so much of the conversation this week because from so many different sides, um, it's, it's almost like a Rorschach test, right? It's got so much you can, you can take from it in many different directions, depending on where you come from and your perspective and your background. Um, but the, the thing that I'll just finish um, and I'll kick it off to the group to talk about, you know, you, you guys can take it in the direction of media coverage, the slap, go with every, wherever you want with it. But the final sort of thing I would say to set the stage for the conversation is that these are two A-listers, um, actual bona fide A-list comedians and actors. And that's something Hollywood has a really hard time producing now. And that's why people don't care about the Oscars because they aren't making those men in black, those original men in black movies or Wild Wild West, those big blockbusters that appeal to the entire country that um, you know writers sit down and say, what's going to make America laugh? What's going to entertain America? Not what's going to entertain the small slice of America um, so that we can recoup our budget and, and have some chance of a profit um, or not what's going to make both America and China laugh. Uh, you know, this is, this is why people care less and less about the Oscars. They've gone to art house movies they have um, not focused on the big budget movies and the big budget movies in and of themselves have been less appealing to wider audiences. So the Oscar ratings, you know, be hovering around 9 million viewers um, last year. I haven't seen the ratings from this year come out quite yet, but that was exactly how many people were watching the 2009 VMA Awards. I mean, the VMA Awards are like a C-list award show um, when Kanye West uh, took the, the trophy from Taylor Swift on stage. So the Oscars uh, descent into obscure and irrelevance um, is not something that can be stopped. Um, it can be delayed. And I think Will Smith sort of did that, but this is all part of the conversation and in the broader context uh, of the death of our, our monoculture and the uh, death of mass media. So with that, I'll kick it open to the group. I mean, I don't have, I don't watch the Oscars. <laughs> I've seen the the slap clip, you know, only via social media, which I don't know is probably a, another narrative in and of itself. But um, I have a hard time with the sort of like defensive honor culture from a guy who's like famously in an open marriage. I think where, you know, the they've been very like the the Pinkett Smiths have been very open about how they don't prioritize monogamy. So it seems a little odd that this is this this is the the joke is the thing that triggered Will Smith of all the things that I think you could point to in an open marriage that might trigger you. Uh, it you know, it but was I think this. that's why he was triggered by the joke. By the way, I think that's when you're that insecure as a man, you become sensitive. I don't that's know. I'm not an aura biologist. <laughs> Yeah, you're not a psychologist. Get out. <laughs> um, so, but I, like that's actually a, a, a very good point because it also did seem like he was, you know, a man that was just like in a deep funk, like of some kind, right? Th this isn't a normal uh, reaction. And you know, at the last, my one and only take on this, and I think I said this on Twitter, is like what I used to see in my public high school, which is when you start uh, <laughs> responding and defending, you know, her honor. Uh, these things escalate quite quickly and someone usually ends up like grievously injured or in jail. So I'm not a huge proponent of this idea that like men have to go out and, and respond to jokes with violence. Now, obviously violence, you know, if someone's harming someone, that's a different story, but I, I was a little like perturbed by the defenses on the right of this. So maybe you guys disagree. So I, I, I guess I have 
I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say on this to be clear, but I, but I, but I have like one cultural take and then one kind of like legal adjacent take. Um, the cultural take is I, I honestly, I mean, I don't follow the Oscars. I actually used to watch the Oscars every year. Um, I mean, I, I, I am a, a bit, I used to be a bit of a movie buff. I can still name like every James Bond movie in order. I could tell you exactly who played Bond, who the Bond villain was. I mean, I've seen like the Godfather one and two, probably 20 times. I mean, like there, there are certain like sub genres of like film that I'm like deeply obsessed with, but over the years I've, I've started to follow it a little less intently than I used to. I guess I failed to realize that Will Smith was still a thing. Um, I, I mean, like growing up, I definitely like enjoyed when I was a kid, like watching, what was it, Boys to Men? Was that, the, was, was that the, those were the movies that he was in? Men in Black, obviously, right? Um, I, but like, I, what does he still do? I mean, I, I literally could, can't, I couldn't even tell you like the last thing that I, I was aware of that Will Smith did. So, I mean, the deeply, deeply, deeply cynical speculation, I find this hard to believe. But, you know, like a publicity stunt of this nature is like a deeply cynical way to maybe stay relevant. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's probably not what happened, but it's at least a possibility. The other thing that I guess I have to say on this topic is shortly after this happened, I don't know if it was Sunday night or maybe it was Monday morning, um, LAPD basically came out and said, we're not going to press charges um, against Will Smith because Chris Rock said that he doesn't want us to. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little uncharitable. You know, I think LAPD same was a little more nuanced on that, but I think that's a very dangerous precedent to set. Actually, I think it's very dangerous for um, police officers, for law enforcement, for prosecutors to basically say, oh, the victim doesn't like want us to press charges. Therefore, we're going to do it. Uh, that's not the way that law enforcement is supposed to work. Um, that's just that's just not the way the prosecution and kind of the Anglo-American tradition is supposed to work. Prosecution is supposed to work, obviously, to uphold and defend the integrity of the rule of law, to punish bad and reward good. That's kind of the quintessential classical definition of justice. So I kind of worry about kind of the potentially troubling cronyist aspects of kind of going down that rabbit hole there. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, these are two mega celebrities, obviously. So I guess in theory, we can kind of write it off as kind of just a sideshow. But uh, it, hypothetically speaking, that's a dangerous road to go down, I think, for the future of the rule of law. So I'll go to a more simplistic take here. And as a rule, I pretty much don't watch any award shows either. Probably the closest thing that I would watch would be like maybe the ESPYs 15 years ago or like a baseball hall of fame ceremony. But setting that aside for a moment, it, it strikes me and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if this is just Russian, Russian disinformation out there. But from what I saw, the clip showed that he was laughing seconds before he being Will Smith was laughing seconds before something was triggered in him and then he snapped um he, that he was is, laughing but his wife was not <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so we've established the fact that he was laughing at the joke originally so that's that's point a and then point b i'm going to build to a pattern here is as was discussed his wife had been with other men in their relationship without getting into the details of this. It's a, it's a known fact. And to, to everyone's point, like they have an open relationship. So why would this be the thing that triggered? And then the open-handed slap. So when I look at all of these data points using my investigative skills as a non-investigator or prosecutor here, this strikes me as the ultimate episode of fake chivalry, which is probably the perfect illustration of our time and our elites. Um, I think the only kind of winner here, the only person who comes out pretty good, I think, is Chris Rock, because he took the hit and then he just kept on going. So I guess if there's one takeaway, uh, Chris Rock made fun of someone. This is what comedians do. If you sit at the front row in front of any comedy show, there's a reason it's called the death seat. You're going to get roasted. It's part of what you're in for. Uh, and Chris Rock took a hit and he took it like a man. So I guess from that perspective, he's the only one that comes out looking good in this. But this this is an, a perfect episode in the Jussie Smollett era of pop culture. So um, uh, any, any final thoughts on the Oscars, Emily, before we move on? No, by all means. Okay, so let's uh, transition over to uh, parting shots here. Uh, who wants to kick us off? I can jump in with something that uh, ben mentioned, and I think you mentioned you were going to write about this, about the, the KBJ sort of ref, ref, refusal to define what a woman is. And I think it just, you know, not to get ahead of what you're going to write, but what's interesting to me about that, and even linking back to my segment about Google too, is that, you know, we are at a moment where the sort of left and, and a very specific segment of the left controls 
how we talk about all these issues, right? They control every major cultural institution. They control specifically the universities in particular, which teach people how to talk about these issues and sort of, you know, I don't want to say, maybe brainwash is too strong a term, but probably not. <laughs> so brainwash people into sort of how to think about these issues. And that was what I think made that moment such a watershed because yes, she was asking, Marsha Blackburn was asking in the context of a case, but what was even more than that, you knew that Judge Jackson could answer the question, right? This is one of the smartest lawyers in America. This wasn't like a gotcha question. It was that she was scared. Um, and Inez and Emily and I have talked about this uh, on, a, on a different podcast, but I think like that, that cannot be overstated, the, the cultural power uh, that, that these, this very small group of people has over how we talk about very basic questions at this point. And this again, goes back to why I sort of bang on about why I think these big tech companies are so dangerous. And, you know, because they are a complicit in doing the same thing, right? It's this, again, this very elite mentality that when, this is why I'm so concerned about our government, you know, making common cause with companies that don't just seek economic access and power, they seek to change and contort the culture around this very specific set of norms. I don't know yet how we get that back. Uh, that is the project for the right, I think, uh, is how to sort of maintain a space in which you, have a, you don't have a Supreme Court nominee sitting before the Senate afraid to call a woman a woman or, or, uh, whose entire life is defining things, can't define the most basic things. So I just leave that up there. It's interesting you bring up this point, um, and we talked about this in the Google segment, um, about cronyism, essentially. And there's so much cultural cronyism that is now way more concerning to all of us and should be more concerning to all of us. Um, in many cases, it goes hand in hand with the sort of like economic cronyism, but it's, it's terrifying because when you have the revolving door of Google in our government, that means their censorship has a lot more sort of friendly or sympathy in the government. And it means that the, the government that's supposed to protect our, our lives and be, um, be working based on our constitution, right? Um, and, and our concept of what freedom is and, and law is, um, that they are not going to be held in check by the media because the media also has the same sort of ideas of what constitutes acceptable speech and the corporate America and government all has them. Uh, the cronyism is so much worse than just Eric Schmidt um, increasing his own net worth. Um, it's him also increasing his cultural net worth and his cultural power. And these ha are all happening at the same time. He wants to wield his cultural power in a deeply unpatriotic way, a deeply unpatriotic um, and un-American and immoral way. So it's not just that the rich are getting rich, it's that the rich are also getting culturally rich at the same time as they're getting more and more culturally bankrupt, morally bankrupt. Um, and so this, this concept of cronyism, we see it so starkly in examples like the, the Eric Schmidt Google one, um, but you also see it exactly as, I forget who mentioned this, the, I think it was Josh, the Jen Psaki um, coming out and, and saying, sort of bragging that she had worked with Mark Zuckerberg uh, to, to figure out exactly what should be censored. Um, and, you know, Jack Dorsey coming up with, uh, and he obviously said this was the wrong decision, but uh, doing the literal Democratic nominee's bidding um, in the exact same way his campaign told him to right before the election by censoring the Hunter Biden story. And Zuckerberg did the same thing at the time as well. So the, the cronyism is, is very different than what it used to be, but um, even more concerning. I'll just um, I'll just say briefly, and then I'll turn over to Josh on the whole KBJ not not defining a woman, not not being able to do so, but being unwilling to do so. The significance of that, um, I agree with Rachel's point that this is Rubicon crossing, and sort of what the rationale was for not defining a woman, uh, something we all know to be true and factual. Uh, I think. Had she given the actual truthful response, she would have gotten the scorn and the most deranged response we've ever seen from the progressive coterie of groups and individuals who backed her nomination to the hilt. Had she gone with whatever deranged definition they would have given, it would have exposed to the country the insanity of their radical sexual agenda. 
So she picked the best of a series of bad choices from a political perspective, not on the merits, of course, by saying she can't define it. Uh, but th this whole issue, though, of not being able to admit the most basic truths about human nature, I think, perfectly captures the, the natural end of the progressive movement. The fact that they have to openly lie and lie as we all know and see it in and of itself sends a chilling and disturbing message to Americans. And the fact that this is of a piece with a radical sexual agenda that ultimately aims to override all of basic truths about human nature and, of course, ultimately destroy the family and beyond speaks to the fact that she will be one of the 10 most powerful people in America, a president, nine Supreme Court justices. And this is her view, and this is what she's representing. And I think that says it all about the revolutionary nature of this future mm -hmm. Supreme Court justice. So I, I also want to go back to the KBJ hearing because there's, there really is a lot to unpack here. And I want to go back to the comment that I flagged during the segment that I hosted earlier with respect to when she was talking with Senator Cornyn. And Senator Cornyn of Texas basically said, how do you anticipate the fallout between the constitutional right to same-sex marriage established in the Obergefell case and religious liberty? And KBJ's extremely flippant, uh, rude, I would say, response was to effectively shrug her shoulders and say, well, Senator, that's just the nature of the right. The reason I think that this is so revealing is because I think the legal right more generally, kind of going back to the founding of the Federal Society to kind of the origins of the modern conservative legal movement, has effectively tried to preach kind of a live and let live style liberalism, right? I mean, like, I think we would call it a right liberalism, but it really is kind of the idea that as long as you don't intrude on my space, I will not intrude on yours. The entire kind of um, edifice of religious liberty litigation, you know, whether it's RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, even kind of getting into constitutional free exercise clause litigation, the entire kind of paradigm of religious liberty litigation on the right of center is oftentimes predicated upon get religious people getting dispensations, exceptions from the liberal paradigm. I say that as you know, someone who used to be of counsel at First Liberty, a religious liberty um, a litigation outfit here. The problem here, and this is what I think kind of the colloquy between KBJ and Senator Corn reveals, the problem is that the left does not accept that premise. The left is effectively making political morality judgments. They are making value judgments that are implicit in how they view the, the rule of law. What KBJ is actually saying to Senator Cornyn is she's saying, I don't care about your notion of live and let live. As far as I view political morality, you know, homosexuality should be placed on a pedestal above and beyond Christianity, traditional Judaism, and so forth. That is what she's saying here. And to the extent that she is saying that, and I think I'm bringing the situation correctly, that is basically, I think, what what critics of kind of the um, the reigning conservative legal movement, you know, folks like uh, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard, folks like myself, that is kind of what we are criticizing when we are proposing alternatives to what has passed for conservative right of center jurisprudence for the past 30, 40 years. Because the status quo would just plead for dispensations from the, the, the paradigm. But if they are kind of putting implicit judgments of political morality into their answer to that question, then that simply does not hold up. It does not hold water and something fundamentally more jurisprudentially speaking is needed, whatever form precisely that may or may not look like. So um, on that note, uh, on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Rachel, I am Josh Hammer, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.